say, it feels really nice to be back and recording podcasts again after parental leave. But, you know, even six weeks later, I feel like I have missed a whole world of things in OBGYN. Yeah, me too, especially nine weeks out. But thankfully for us, um, we can refresh our memory with the OBG project. That's right. The OBG project kind of has their great, great summaries in these bullet point formats online. They've got resident exclusive resources, the core curriculum, um, and they've got a new project in the primary care med project. Um, you can check that out as well, which lets you get up to date with all those primary care guidelines that we got to keep up with too. And even better, if you're a resident, remember that you can get OBG first absolutely free. So if you want to figure out how to do that, go ahead and go onto our website, click on the sidebar, and link to the OBG project. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over coffee. coffee. All right. So, Faye, um, you know, I'm surprised that we haven't touched the subject of post-term pregnancies on the podcast. I feel like we've just been focusing on preterm for so much, and maybe post-term has, like, kind of moved past us. But today we're finally going to get there. Um, what are our learning objectives? Yeah, so today we are going to define post-term pregnancy relative to other points in pregnancy. Um, we're going to explain the perineal outcomes associated with post-term pregnancies. And then finally, we're going to review the management options for post-term pregnancies. So uh, let's start off with that definition first, Nick. What does it mean to be post-term? Yeah, so you might think post-term of anything after term, um, but actually this kind of is a very specific language, actually. So ACOG has put together sort of a nomenclature surrounding pregnancy term status, and just worth reviewing, 24 to 27 and 6 is extremely preterm, 28 to 33 and 6 weeks is preterm, 34 to 36 and 6 is late preterm, 37 to 38 and 6 gets into term, but this is specifically early term. 39 to 40 and 6 is now term. 41 to 41 and 6, this is late term. And then it's not until 42 weeks and beyond that we actually get to quote unquote post term. Um, so again, we're really going to focus in today predominantly on this time period, the post term 42 weeks and beyond. That we'll touch a little bit on sort of the late term pregnancies as well. That is the 41 to 41 and 6. Now, in terms of birth certificate data and actually how many pregnancies get to this point, it's not too many in the United States. Only about 5% of births in the U.S. happen at 41 weeks and beyond, according to the Practice Bulletin, which was reaffirmed in 2020, but was written, I think, way back in like 2014 or something like that. So it's probably changed even more since then. Um, and at that point, only about a quarter percent of births happened at 42 weeks and beyond. This is largely a consequence of how we manage these pregnancies today, since we tend to induce folks before they get to 42 weeks in many systems. Um, but again, we're going to talk more about sort of that management later in the podcast. Now, you might be thinking, well, who's going to get to post-term pregnancy? I feel like nobody should be getting to 42 weeks, right? But there are some patients where you might expect them or might think they'd be more at risk for this. These patients are those who are nulliparous, who are obese, who have advanced maternal age, um, those with a personal history of post-term birth in a prior pregnancy, 
a male fetus apparently has a risk factor for being post-term, kind of interesting. Um, and then certain fetal conditions might interrupt signaling for parturition or the process of labor. And so pregnancy is affected by anencephaly, placental sulfatase deficiency, or X-linked ichthyosis um, may also be at risk for post-term because of issues arising from, again, the signaling pathways for starting labor. All right, so that's definitions, risk factors, stuff like that, Faye. Um, you know, we never really see, I feel like, in many contexts, post-term pregnancies. But it sort of begs the question, is there exactly like a problem with post-term pregnancies? Yeah. So, you know, the way that I kind of explain it to patients is that think of the fetus as basically overstaying its welcome. Um, and so there are multiple consequences to being post-term, the first of which is just macrosomia. So 2.5 to 10% of post-term pregnancies have um, a infant that is going to weigh greater than 4,500 grams versus only 1% at term. And so there are, of course, all the risk factors that come with macrosomia that, you know, we've talked about before. So certainly that is one issue. Um, the second is something called dismaturity. So this is a sign of chronic intrauterine malnutrition, likely resulting from relative oligohydramnios, cord compression, meconium passage, um, as all of which could possibly also be a sign of a placenta that you know is basically wearing out uh, in that time. The placenta is dying and not necessarily going to be able to sustain a fetus past a certain point. Um, the physical signs that we think of for post-term pregnancies are things like that, you know, parchment-like skin where there's less vernix and then the skin starts to peel and feel thin. We see meconium staining of the amniotic fluid and skin. There's an increased risk of meconium aspiration, of course, because meconium has passed. Um, and then these babies also can have things like long, thin bodies, long fingernails, hypoglycemia, and polycythemia. And then finally, the thing that we you know care about the most is that there really is an increased risk of perinatal morbidity and mortality. So Babies that are born after 42 weeks have higher rates of NICU admissions, seizures, meconium aspiration, and five-minute APGAR scores under four. Um, and oligohydramnios rates also go up the longer the pregnancy goes on, predisposing to risks associated with oligohydramnios. And remember, because of the risk of stillbirth, um, in isolation, delivery for oligo is actually recommended anytime after 36 weeks. So certainly if we're seeing oligohydramnios and the baby is post-term, we would recommend delivery. And then we also know that infants born at 41 weeks or greater have about one-third higher risk of perinatal death versus those that are born at term. And this risk increases to two times greater at 42 weeks, four times greater at 43 weeks, and at very scary five to seven times greater at 44 plus weeks. And importantly, while these relative risks are quite high, it should also be stated that the absolute risk is still very, very low because the stillbirth risk at 40 weeks is less than one per 1,000 ongoing pregnancies. So that means at 41 to 42 weeks, this increases only to 1.2 to 1.3 out of 1,000 pregnancies. Um, at 42 to 43 weeks, it's 1.3 to 1.9 out of 1,000. And then at 43 to 44 weeks, it's 1.5 to 6 out of 1,000. And then the last thing, of course, is that there's not just risk to the fetus or the infant, there's also maternal risks to ongoing pregnancy. Um, a large observational study has suggested increased rates of many major OB morbidities, and these include things like higher order lacerations, postpartum hemorrhage, infection, and the need for cesarean delivery. All right, so now that we've talked about all that scary stuff, Nick, how do we go about managing a post-term pregnancy? 
Well, one of the first things that you always have to confirm when you're thinking about something to do with managing a pregnancy because of issues with size or dates is to always confirm your dating, right? One thing that can be a limitation to some of the data we've actually described is to know how a pregnancy was dated or how accurate that is. We did an episode a long, long time ago about pregnancy dating. That's always a CREOG question, so make sure that you review that information. Mm-hmm. Um, But some studies actually have shown that the incidence of post-term pregnancy, just to magnify the scope of this problem, was reduced from 9.5% to 1.5% when the folks switched from last menstrual period dating to ultrasound-based dating. So this really underscores the importance of early ultrasounds and the accuracy of the last menstrual period with respect to establishing dates. Again, by using the most obstetrically accurate dating that you can, this can help to decrease unnecessary interventions, whether that be for post-dates as we're talking about today, or other things like incorrectly calling a fetus growth-restricted, delivering out of concern for macrosomia, for instance, by cesarean, um, or other issues that, that you might encounter again in this sort of size-dates thing. Now, one thing that I wanted to manage in terms One thing that I want to discuss in terms of the management of post-term pregnancy that I thought was interesting in this practice bulletin was that membrane sweeping actually gets special mention in this practice bulletin. I don't know if we've talked about membrane sweeping on the podcast before, Faye, um, but just to describe it out loud, this is kind of using your gloved finger to quote-unquote stir up the membranes, right? You kind of go around the internal os, you stay there for several seconds, and the thought behind this is that this releases some sort of endogenous prostaglandin to kind of help with cervical ripening and starting some contractions. There's actually a Cochrane review out there that demonstrates membrane sweeping that helps reduce the incidence of pregnancies that are progressing past 41 weeks. So this is something certainly that after a shared decision-making discussion with your patient is something that you could consider as you're approaching that sort of late-term or post-dates type of period. Um, Just to make sure though that again this is not the most comfortable process um, and can cause some spotting or bleeding. So again um, worth informing your patient about but it is something that might help reduce the incidence of those post-dates pregnancies. Faye, one thing that we do have to make mention of for any pregnancy that's moving towards um, the kind of post-term type of period is that of fetal surveillance. Yeah, so ACOG recommends doing some type of fetal surveillance uh, for pregnancies progressing past 41 weeks, but they actually stop short of making an outright specific recommendation. Um, And this is because there are insufficient data comparing approaches for antenatal testing and whether one reduces stillbirth risk better than another. So ACOG does recommend antenatal testing, but they also admit that there are no randomized controlled trials demonstrating that fetal surveillance decreased perinatal morbidity or mortality. And the benefit is presumed in capturing and reducing the risk when we can. So for example, if we're doing antenatal testing, we're more likely to find oligohydramnios. Some options might bring you, this might bring you back a bit to our antepartum testing episode, um, or use that as a refresher. We'll link that on the website. Some options include things like a biophysical profile or a modified biophysical profile. So a small randomized controlled trial has not demonstrated any difference between the two in neonatal outcomes when used in pregnancy beyond 42 weeks. So just to remind us ourselves, the modified BPP is where we do the non-stress test as well as a fluid check. And it's advantageous in that you're getting the NST as well as that fluid assessment, again, to check for oligohydramnios. One of the better, less invasive tests for negative predictive value of stillbirth um, is this modified or 
uh, just the full BPP. So this kind of, I guess, gives us some reassurance that you know we're not having an increased risk of stillbirth if that BPP is eight out of 10, 10 out of 10, or the modified BPP um, is uh, shows a reactive tracing and there's good fluid. For fluid assessment, really, the deepest vertical pocket has been demonstrated to reduce unnecessary intervention without increasing adverse outcomes for the fetus. So as always, try to get that deepest vertical pocket if possible. The other option is to do NST alone. So this is more convenient to do and doesn't require an ultrasound. Um, And you can do this weekly or twice weekly. And twice weekly may be better based on some small studies, but the data is still insufficient. And again, given the overall rare absolute outcome of stillbirth or neonatal morbidity, um, these studies are difficult to adequately power. All right, so now that we've kind of talked about like the fetal surveillance, we've talked about, you know, membrane sweeping, are there any labor concerns that we need to be thinking about, Nick? Yeah, so ACOG doesn't actually provide specific recommendations regarding labor management in the post-AIDS population, aside from one particular group, and that is for folks who are considering or undergoing a trial of labor after cesarean or TOLAC candidates. There does not appear to be an increased risk of uterine rupture when a pregnancy advances beyond 41 weeks. But the failure risk of TOLAC does increase. Remember, we've talked about this on the podcast before, um, where the failure rate for somebody who is prior to 40 weeks is around 22.2% all comers. Um, If you get to after 41 weeks, this failure risk increases to 35.4%. This is really a clinical conundrum, and it's probably why ACOG brings it up in the context of the bulletin, because you know you consider data that suggests increasing success with spontaneous labor, but that's not a guaranteed outcome, right? Um, and then if you want to induce TOLAX, again, there may be a slightly increased risk of rupture. And we've talked about that on the podcast before, too, and different institutions do different things with respect to that. Um, but you certainly have to sort of weigh those risks against each other and work through a shared decision-making process with patients so they're aware of all of the risks with respect to um, risk of failure, likelihood of success, potential for catastrophic outcomes um, to help make the right decision for them, basically. Okay, so final question that I have for you, Faye. No, it's not common, I have to admit, where I have seen a patient who's on the labor floor at 43 weeks. And I'm not sure I've ever seen a patient on the labor floor at 44 weeks. Um, But how long could you let it go in theory? So ACOG says that induction at 41 weeks and zero days can be considered based on limited evidence of increasing risk at or beyond this gestational age. And if advancing beyond 41 weeks, um, some sort of antenatal testing should be performed, which we just talked about. Um, But ACOG definitively recommends delivery at 42 weeks and beyond, definitely by 42 and 6 because of the increased risk of morbidity and mortality. And that's probably why we don't see a lot of people coming in at 43 weeks. And again, like I said, I don't think I've ever seen anyone come in at 43. 44 weeks. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So let's go ahead and summarize. Yeah, so we start off with some definitions, right? Because we're talking about post-term, but that's actually very specific. Recall the ACOG language, 24 to 27 and 6 weeks is extremely preterm. 28 to 33 and 6 is preterm. 34 to 36 and 6 is late preterm. 37 to 38 and 6, early term. 39 to 40 and 6, term. 41 to 41 and 6, late term, and then 42 weeks and beyond is considered post-term. Only about 5% of pregnancies 
end in birth at 41 weeks and beyond in the United States, and it's probably largely a consequence of how we manage it. Um, but risk factors for being post-term include nulliparity, obesity, advanced maternal age, personal history of post-term births and prior pregnancies, male fetus, interestingly enough, and in certain fetal conditions that can interrupt signaling for parturition. The problem with post-term pregnancies is that we can think of this as the baby overstaying its welcome. This leads to things like increased risks of macrosomia, increased risk of dismaturity, and then finally increased risk of perinatal morbidity and mortality, um, specifically things like higher rates of NICU admission, seizures, meconium aspiration, and lower APGAR scores at that five-minute mark. There are also increased risk of mortality, where the infants born at 41 weeks or greater have about a one-third higher risk of perinatal death versus those born at term. There are also maternal risks that we need to think about, and these include things like higher-order lacerations, postpartum hemorrhage, infection, and C-section. The first step in managing a post-term pregnancy is to confirm pregnancy dating. Remember, this can be inaccurate and cause you to intervene when you don't need to, so be sure to use the best obstetrical dating that you have available to reduce that risk of unnecessary intervention. Membrane sweeping gets special mention in this practice bulletin as a Cochrane review demonstrated it can help reduce the incidence of pregnancies past 41 weeks. And fetal surveillance is important for anybody who's thinking about pregnancy moving past 41 weeks. ACOG recommends doing something, but stop short of making an outright specific recommendation because there are no data really to compare approaches for antenatal testing and whether one approach reduces stillbirth risk better than the other. They do throw some options out there, including doing a biophysical profile, modified BPP, or doing NSTs alone on a once or twice weekly basis. In terms of labor considerations, ACOG doesn't really provide any specific recommendations regarding labor management aside from those who wish to TOLAC. Um, and while there doesn't appear to be an increased risk of uterine rupture, there is an increased risk of failure rates. Um, and then also we know that there is potentially increased uh, risk of rupture with induction if you're trying to induce somebody with TOLAC. So definitely this is a shared decision-making process. And then finally, in terms of how long we can let this go on for, ACOG says that induction can be considered at 41 weeks, but it really should be recommended at 42 weeks and beyond, and definitely by 42 and 6. All right, so that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast, head over to uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Creags Over Coffee, on X at Creags Over Coffee One. And if you want to support our show, you can go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Over Coffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our prior episodes on the website, www.creagsovercoffee.com. And if you want to say hi to us, uh, if you have a correction for the show or ideas for other episodes, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>